You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I'm talking with Gail how to integrate external data into your clinical studies from theory to application. <music> evidence and how you can combine that with clinical studies what was kind of unthinkable in the past is now something that is more and more pushed forward and there will be also topics about these kind of things at similar kind of really great applications of scientific statistical scientific theory and their applications at the conference, at the PSI conference, which happens in June in Gothenburg in Sweden. So if you have never been to a PSI conference, then this year really get to it. Um, after two years not having a face-to-face -face conference, this will be really, really great not just from a content perspective, but also from a people perspective. I know that many, many people will travel there because they want to meet all the other great people. It's such a lovely crowd that meets there. You can talk to so many different people, even, you know, if you're an introvert like most of us, yeah? These people have the same problems, the same kind of challenges, um, and help each other in this outstanding way of sharing their ideas, sharing their experiences and talking about it. And there's, you know, more junior people and there's more senior people and all go together and you can, you know, talk to really outstanding people. So see you in Gothenburg in June. I'm pretty sure it will be amazing. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician. And today I'm talking about something that I find really, really interesting. But I'm not the, let's say, perfect expert for this. And uh, so I'm really glad to have uh, Gail here, uh, who will talk with me about this topic. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Happy New Year. I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, we are recording this at the beginning of 2022, and it's uh, yeah, it's really great to have you. But maybe for the listeners who don't know you, uh, you can introduce yourself uh, a little bit first. Yes, sure. So, so I am Gail Saint-Hilary. I am statistical methodologist, and I have just founded my company, Saria. So I have now uh, 16 years of experience, mostly in the pharmaceutical industry. So after my master's degree uh, from the French National School of uh, Statistics in, in France, I started first as a statistician on the project. So in uh, neuropsychiatry at Servier. And then five years later, I joined uh, Novartis in oncology. So I was working on the projects, but I've always had the opportunity to do quite a lot of statistical methodology, both at Servi and at Novartis, so 
to, to, to supervise student interns, to, to provide trainings, to participate in working groups, also at Novartis to collaborate with the, the methodology team there. So at one point in time in my career, I had to make a choice either to do more methodology, but for that I needed a PhD, I didn't have a PhD, or to gain more responsibilities on the projects. And then I chose methodology, so I decided to go back to school and to do a PhD. And I didn't want either to, to spend, you know, six, ten years doing my PhD while working on parallel. So I've really decided to do it 100% for three years. So I've, I've done my PhD then on, on quantitative decision making in web development at uh, the Polytechnic University of Turin. I was sponsored by Servier, so still uh, linked to the, the pharmaceutical industry, but 100% back to the university as a student. And I have to say that was really great. I really enjoyed it after 10 years of experience going back to, to the university as a student. And then finally, I got my PhD. Uh, and then at the end of my PhD, Servier proposed me to have a position of a statistical methodologist. That was a great position. I stayed there three years. That was really, really great. But, you know, I always had in my head a little voice pushing me to create my own company. And so this is what I've done this year. I've created uh, my company, Sariga, and, uh, and I'm happier than ever. <laughs> <laughs> That is really awesome. And, you know, benefit risk is a really important topic that is also close to my heart. And mm -hmm. if you go back in the podcast episodes and scroll through the couple of hundreds, there's also a couple of them about uh, benefit risk. And so just uh, scroll back and you'll uh, see a couple of these. But today we don't want to talk about benefit risk. Today, mm -hmm. we want to talk about historical control and how you can use that better in your design of uh, studies. So where do you see the biggest benefits for um, using external data into the design and analysis of clinical trials? So um, just perhaps just before going into the details of the use of external data, I would like to mention that um, with the, the PSI, EFSPI, Special Interest Group on Historical Data, we are currently having an innovation task force with EMA uh, to discuss the best way to implement such methodologies and clinical trials and uh, to ensure that the agencies have all they need to evaluate the, the benefit risk of incorporating historical data in uh, clinical trials case by case on each case. So this is ongoing. We had a meeting with the EMA last November and there will be further interactions with them. So I just wanted to mention that to, to let the listeners know that uh, this is ongoing and there will be more news from our special interest group very soon on the topic. Uh, and also with uh, Sebastian Weber and myself, we are giving a training uh, very soon also uh, for, uh, for the PSI on, on that topic too. Yeah. So by the way, there is this uh, special interest group for historical control and there's also one for benefit risk. Indeed. And if you're interested in joining this, just head over to the PSI homepage at psiweb.org where you can find the special interest groups, very often just named six, and so SIG, and you'll find these and many others where you can uh, contribute as well and also learn from like trainings, webinars, conference sessions. These are very often organized by the special interest groups. 
Mm-hmm. Indeed, and volunteers are always welcome. So yeah, yeah, and it, you don't need to be an expert. Actually, you know, even if you really want to learn about it, contribute to it, there's always opportunity for this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's go back to, uh, to your question. <laughs> to yes, sorry question about the benefits, the pros, pros and cons of using uh, external data. So the main objective really of using historical data in, in clinical trials is to, to increase the efficiency of the clinical trials. And there are typically two situations where uh, using historical data is particularly uh, appropriate. The first one, the most common one, is when it is hard to collect data, typically pediatric populations, rare disease, for example. Then in this case, if there are historical data available, then the objective of using them is clearly to reduce the number of patients enrolled in the trial and then to increase the feasibility of the trial. So this is the most common uh, situation where historical data are useful. But there is another one, which is when there are already a lot of data available. Because Mm -hmm. in this case, it is questionable whether there is a value of recollecting again the same evidence when, for example, the effect of a comparator is well known from historical data with also its heterogeneity. Then in this case, the objective of using the historical data it may also be to reduce the number of patients enrolled in the control trial, in the control arm, and then to limit the, the exposure to a potentially less effective treatment. But it could also be simply to, to include the same number of patients, but to increase the power of the trial and to increase the amount of evidence that is considered to make decisions. So today, the first case when it is hard to obtain data is the most common setting and the most uh, acceptable from a regulatory point of view. But uh, the second situation may be appropriate too. Yeah, I think the second uh, situation especially becomes more relevant when um, you need, for example, for HDA discussions, for pricing and reimbursement discussions, people mm-hmm. want to see more data. They want to see how um, the evidence grows if you combine it with existing data. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that you know strengthens your data, whether that weakens your data, um, why are there potentially differences and things like this? So, um, this, yeah, beyond the regulator, regulators, I'm pretty sure there are other stakeholders that will be interested in these kind of things in the future as well. Indeed, mm. to use more, more evidence to make decisions in general. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and with that, of course, if you need less patients, you can recruit faster or recruit less mm-hmm. <laughs> in a shorter <laughs> period of time and therefore potentially accelerate the, uh, the access to a new medication uh, through Indeed. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I touched already a little bit on the different problems that could come with this approach. Where do you see the biggest challenges? The, the first challenge concerns, the, the main, I think, challenge concerns the identification, the selection of the historical data, of the external data. There are, uh, I mean, systematic reviews are seen today as 
to be the gold standard to summarize the relevant evidence from historical data. And there are now very good guidances with strict uh, standards for systematic reviews. I'm thinking, for example, at the, the handbook from the Cochrane collaboration, but there is yep. also the, the Prisma framework, the Prospero uh, register, and so on. So there are good guidelines. But in any case, uh, when if it is for, for a, a regulatory study, it is important to have an early discussion with the regulators to ensure that there is an alignment on, on using historical data and on which historical data could be used on the selection, the scope of the systematic review, the inclusion, exclusion criteria of the studies, the quality assessment of the studies as well. So I would say this is probably the, the main challenge. And when we discussed that with the EMA, they, they highlighted that too also, that it is really the main challenge before actually incorporating the historical data to select the, the right data. Yeah, it, have you? Is it primarily then you based on published summary statistics, or is there also the opportunity, for example, to use patient level data? Both. Uh, my, I, I am. I have more expertise in using summarized data, but it is also possible to use individual patient data from registries, for example. And uh, in the the, the the challenge is the same in this case. It is really to select the appropriate data, even either the, the appropriate studies or the appropriate patients from a registry uh, that match appropriately with the, the 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 current study. Yeah, yeah, and I think there is a general trend to make such data more available um, with data transparency, data sharing, there's much more going on in, in, these, uh, in this regard. And so I think that in the future, there is potentially more opportunity to use these patient level data. And then of course you can make it more similar to your study data by Yeah, applying mm -hmm. certain inclusion exclusion criteria, using the actual data for better understanding, doing additional analysis, these like uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about how you actually do this. So um, let's imagine you have um, your your clinical trial. And there you have um, control arms that's maybe smaller than the, the active arms, a new one. And you also have a control arm, many control arms from, uh, from published literature. How do you combine these different data sets together? So um, I, there are different steps, I would say. The first step, uh, I, if I talk about really the map prior and the, 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 the dynamic borrowing approach with the map priors, then, uh, so this is an approach that was developed by uh, Beat Nowenswander and colleagues and from Novartis. And then uh, the first step is to, to derive the predictive effects uh, of the, in the current study from the external studies. So when the external studies are available and they are carefully selected, the principle is to, to perform a random effect meta-analysis from the, the, the historical studies that accounts for the between trial uh, variability. And then we focus on the predictive effect, so the, the true effect that is expected in the future study before it is conducted. And then the distribution of this predictive effect serves as prior for the future study. It is an informative prior, so it is a meta-analytic predictive prior. And that's why it is a Bayesian design, because the information from the ex external data is used as a prior for the parameters of the actual study. 
So that is the derivation of the map prior. And then um, just just a question on that. If you talk about treatment effect, then that is kind of the baseline to endpoint effect, for example, or the the rate the, the rates of patients that get cured or don't die or whatever. Yeah. It could be it is your primary endpoint usually. So it could be uh it really depends on the context on the study. It could be also just the effect of the control arm, so for, for one treatment, for example, or it, you could also borrow on the treatment difference if you have information on the treatment difference. This is perhaps more controversial, but uh, that's also possible. So in some sense, you, you borrow whatever you need and whatever you, you want to, to borrow on. So, so it really depends on the context and the study. Ah, okay. Okay, so it could be within treatment, but it could also be between on the, difference. the treatment. Mm. Uh, yes. treatment effects. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, um, and then you incorporate it in your current study. So you could incorporate it as it is, as an informative prior, but you could also use dynamic borrowing that permits to, to handle the, the prior data conflict. So that permits to uh, address the question, what if there is a discrepancy between the study data and the historical data? So dynamic borrowing approaches, they, they protect against the, the prior data conflict in the sense that they only integrate historical data into the analysis when the data are sufficiently similar. There is some kind of a check within the, the method mm -hmm. to ensure it is reasonable to incorporate historical data. So the, so the, the, the dynamic approach I know the, the best is robust mixture prior. So it is mixing the map prior derived from the historical data with a vague prior, a non-informative prior. And we, we put pre-specified weights on the map prior and the vague prior. So we put one weight, let's say W, on the map prior. And this weight represents the prior belief that the historical information is relevant for the actual study. And we put a weight of 1 minus W, so the complementary, on a vague prior that represents a large uncertainty around the treatment effect. And these weights, W and 1 minus W, they are pre-specified, but once the data of the current study are collected, then the weights are automatically updated to reflect really the agreement between the study data and the external data. So the dynamic borrowing automatically downweights the historical data if they are conflicting with the actual study data. Uh, okay, so that the key thing in there is that you're waiting, you can pre-specify it, yeah? Which is one of the many problems if you do these kind of things post hoc. It's always kind of a, a challenge. Okay, there's a discrepancy. How do you handle it? And of course, there's you know then a lot of argument about it. Well, is this a better approach or is that a better approach? And you can you know justify lots of different things. But if you directly kind of can include it pre-specified, uh, mm -hmm. that of course makes it really really interesting and much more trustworthy, so to say. This is what we push for indeed with the, the special interest group is that really all the design points should be pre-specified in advance. And that's why it is important before conducting the study uh, design to conduct appropriate operating characteristics to assess 
the, 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 the impact of all the design parameters that are chosen, not the weights, of course, but also the sample size, also, uh, I mean, uh, all the, the different parameter, parameters that are used. Everything should be pre-specified like in a classical frequentist clinical trial. But mm. what is important also here is that these weights, they are pre-specified to, to represent the prior belief that the historical data are relevant for the actual study, but they are actually updated because this is a Bayesian setting. So we have prior weights and in some sense we have posterior weights that actually reflect that what is observed in the current study. So they are automatically updated to reflect what was actually observed. Okay, okay. What kind of uh, factors go into the weights? Is it baseline characteristics only or is it more than that? No, it is more, I would say they should be chosen uh, with first with the scientific rationale, so with the discussion with the, the clinicians to really try to quantify their prior beliefs that the historical data are relevant. If they are some skeptical, the weight could be quite low, like 50, 60%, usually not less than 50%, otherwise there is no, no, not in, no interest of using historical data, but uh, it could be low, like 50, 60% if the, the clinical teams are really skeptical about the, the relevance of the historical data. And it could be quite high until 90% um, if we really think that the, the historical evidence is relevant for the study. So that's the first step. But then after that, it is important uh, still to try different values in the operating characteristics to assess the impact. So to imagine what kind of data could be collected and to see what is impact on the final conclusion to be sure that the, the results will be robust anyway to mm -hmm. the, the, this prior weight. And if this is a regulatory study, these choices and these scientific and technical rationales, I would say, should be discussed with the health authorities as well. Yeah, yeah, because then uh, you can assess of kind of what could be best worst case scenarios um, if you run your study, because, mm. well, we know within clinical trials, <laughs> lots of different things can happen. <laughs> Even a pandemic in the middle of the study. Yeah, so sure. um, that's very good. In terms of improving sample size, how does that work? How do, how do you kind of update the sample size calculations then? Mm -hmm. So first, anyway, using external data, permits, if it is possible, then to reduce the actual sample size of the study, to, to recruit less patients, to increase the feasibility of the trials, because in some sense, there is some kind of replacement. We replace an actual patient by historic, historical patients, but there is not a one-to-one -one replacement of an actual patient by an historical patient. It actually depends on two things. It depends on the heterogeneity of the treatment effects in the historical studies, and it depends on the weight we put on the robust components or the vague component in the mixture priors. And so the, the amount of information that is contained in the prior, it is, um, it is represented by the prior effective sample size. So the quantity of information introduced in the prior, but expressed in terms of number of patients. Mm -hmm. But then this prior effective sample size, it is always lower than the number of patients in the historical data. And 
the, the effective sample size decreases with the between trial heterogeneity. Yep. So if the between trial heterogeneity increases, the ESS decreases because the amount of inform historical information contained in the map prior is lower, so we have more heterogeneity. And the effective sample size also decreases with increasing weight on the vague component in the robust mixture prior. It's really for the same reason, the more uncertainty we have in the prior, the less information it contains, it contains and then the lower the effective sample size. Would you have a, a guidance, kind of a rule of thumb that, you know, you need to have at least, don't know, decrease the sample size by 10% or 20% so that it makes sense to have these all these kind of different considerations. Because I would guess that if you can save just maybe two or three or 5% of the overall sample size, maybe mm -hmm. it's not really worth the effort. Uh, with all the, you know, additional consultations, the additional, you know, analysis you need to do, all the, the other things? I think it's not the only consideration I, I, would, uh, I would consider, actually. There is the effective sample size, but you could also have a little gain in sample size, but compensate with the gain in power. Mm -hmm. You could also have, so it's one of the challenges we haven't talked about is that there is a potential increase of the type 1 error with dynamic borrowing with, uh, with uh, using historical data, but there is also a possible gain in, in uh, type 1 error. I mean, it's compared to a frequency design where the type 1 error is fixed, here the type 1 error really depends on the agreement between the historical data and the study data. And then there are, I would say, three things mainly to consider, the effective sample size indeed, the power and the type 1 error. And then you can choose the scenario, the, 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 then the weight and the historical data that permits to have a good compromise between the sample size, the power, and the type 1 error increase and decrease, potential increase and potential decrease. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's very good. Okay. So when we have done the final analysis, how do we uh, best make decisions based on that? So it is, it is a clinical study. It is a, a design for clinical study. So I would say the decision is, is the same as with the frequentist design globally. The decision criterion should be pre-specified as well. It should be part of the design, actually. Uh, so you could have a decision criterion that is equivalent to a frequentist decision criterion. For example, that we want to have at least 97.5% probability that the truth difference is greater than zero. So this is equivalent to the statistical significance in a frequency design. You could also, and uh, I would advise that to also incorporate uh, criteria for clinical relevance. So for mm -hmm. example, to have at least 50% uh, probability that the true treatment difference is uh, less than uh, clinically relevant value, for example. So you, you, but you need to pre-specify the success rule in advance. And once the data are collected, then uh, you, you, so the, the data are actually analyzed in a Bayesian framework with your informative prior you have defined, and the success criterion is evaluated if it is fulfilled the study successful, otherwise it is not. So it is exactly the same principle as with the frequencies design, and. It is always important to perform sensitivity analysis. I yes. keep saying yeah. that it is important to, to perform sensitivity analysis. So it is also important here to perform sensitivity analysis. So 
analyzing the study data alone without using historical information, there will be less power. So it may not, uh, the, the, the success criterion may not be fulfilled, but it permits to check that the trend is the same, that the historical data do not change the conclusion. So it is quite important. And there is another sensitivity analysis I think about. It is a tipping point analysis where to see how much the prior weight on the historical data should have been changed to change the conclusion. So that permits to assess the robustness of the results, the robustness of the conclusion, the sensitivity to the choice of the design parameters. But we have similar also uh, analysis uh, for the frequentist design. So the decision-making process is the same. We pre-specify the decision criteria. We evaluate them given the data and we perform uh, sensitivity analysis. Yeah, I very much like these tipping point analyses. These mm. are very nice way to show the robustness of your mm -hmm. data and how much you can kind of stretch your assumptions be before things break down. Mm. Um, there's actually also currently a PSI webinar uh, that is coming on, uh, well, will have happened by the time this episode goes live. Yeah. So um, you can just check out the um, recording on the uh, video-on-demand library of, of PSI on that to learn more about tipping point analysis. Yeah, that is very good. Also, if you have then these decision criteria, of course, you can um, do kind of all kind of different simulations to better assess the characteristics of your, of your study design and, and optimize for all kinds of different features there. Yeah. So that is really good. Now, practically speaking, now I have this really, really nice theory, but I guess there's no standard SaaS procedure to, to implement it, is it? So I think that the best way to implement this approach is, I, I'm talking really about the dynamic borrowing approaches with the MapRior, is to use our package or best. Yeah. Um, that was recently recently published, by the way. So it, it is online for for a long time. It is available for a long time. But the publication associated to the package was uh, published uh, end of last year. It is it was developed by Sebastian Weber also from Novartis. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this R package is really easy to use, very complete, with a lot of examples, very complete documentation. So I highly recommend it. And, uh, and the training we are giving for the PSI also present extensively how to use our package uh, our best. Yeah. So check out the homepage of this uh, episode where you where we will provide links to all these different things that we talked about. The, the PSI training, the R packages, the references to the literature, and of course, also to Gail's uh, new company that she, that she just found. Oh, so that's really, really good. So overall, we talked about uh, the pros and cons of using historical data or any external data in the design and analysis of your clinical trials. And so it's especially useful in rare diseases or in situations where it's really difficult to recruit patients like in pediatric settings and discussed, you know, the different steps there with the meta-analytic approach, the um, dynamic borrowing, how that works with uh, the effective sample size and these kind of things to, to basically come up to that it's 
rather straightforward to implement it using R, which is really, really nice. It's I see it kind of all the time that there's that there's new R package for this nice approach and another new R package for another mm -hmm. approach. And um, that makes it so easy to use it and also so transparent what is actually going on, which is absolutely brilliant. And, and I love that our industry is moving that way because it um, closes a lot of gaps between academia and, and uh, the industry. Indeed. For those people that want to use this approach, what would be kind of a key point they, they should think about before, before stepping into this? What is, what is the most important points that you would like the, the listener to take away? Mm -hmm. So um, I would say, yes, before the, 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 the main point is really about the historical data. Are the historical data available? Are they of good quality? Is it possible to use them for the clinical trials? This is the first point, even before thinking about really the implementation uh, to, to consider the, the quality of the historical data. And then the second point is, uh, but it is uh, easy, easier to solve, it is that it is different to set up a, a trial with uh, with dynamic borrowing compared to frequently designed. So you need to be trained. The statisticians need to be trained. Uh, it's not so complicated, but they need to be ready to, to choose the design parameters, to lead the discussion with the clinical teams. So people need to be trained and to, to know how to implement such approaches. Yeah, and plan for a little bit more time around these because... Uh, I know these kind of discussions about what's the quality of the data, mm -hmm. how do we set up the SLRs, the systematic literature review, um, extracting these, kind of reviewing these. There's always kind of different things with it. And then maybe there's even, you know, while you're doing this, there's new studies coming out and you need to update things. So um, it's not a straightforward things that you do on a Friday afternoon. So um, take a little bit of time for that. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much. That was an awesome uh, discussion about this uh, really important topic. And I think that um, especially for the many, many rare diseases that we have, this will be so much helpful to provide the evidence that we need for, for all the different stakeholders to make good decisions. So thanks a lot for that. And especially all the best with your new company. Uh, you. I hope it flourishes and <laughs> that you can't help yourself for getting clients. <laughs> Thank you very much, Alexander. That was really nice. This show was created in association with PSI. Check out the PSI homepage at psiweb.org to learn more about the conference. Thanks to Rain, who helps with the show in the background, and thank you for listening. Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.